They're always saying thank you. They're always expressing gratitude toward the people around them. For others, it, it, it doesn't. They may even after a while think, oh, I didn't even say thanks, or did I say thanks? Did I, did I remember to say that? And some, every once in a while, take blessings and the amazing things that happen to them, or certainly the amazing things that God does for granted. A couple of weeks ago in Nehemiah, we were talking about the fact that Nehemiah in sacred scripture had one whole chapter whereby he was just listing names of people. And we talked about why that would be. All he did is simply listed the names of the people who had been involved in rebuilding the wall and, and what they did and what they accomplished, who did what gate, who built what gate, and what people were involved in that. From Nehemiah's vantage point, he was writing his memoirs. Nehemiah was just writing a diary. This is what happened. As he began years later after the event took place, he looked back on all that God had done during that experience there, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and began to write down his memoirs. I can't imagine he was sitting in a temple somewhere saying, I'm writing scripture. This got to be good. He was writing his memoirs. But God in his amazing grace preserved that chapter to talk to us in just that moment about all the people who contributed and what they did. At the same time, I remember saying to you that Paul in Romans chapter 16 does an amazing thing, takes an enormous risk. He thanks people by name. In my setting, in a public arena like this, it's very difficult to do that because I know someone will be upset or I left them out. And, and we so often thank people who are on the stage or people who do a, a, a work that everyone sees. And there are so many people who work so faithfully behind the scenes that you never see. People who come every single Friday for an hour and a half to two hours stuffing the bulletin. People who work together pulling the food bank together. People who work in a library. People who serve in a cafe. Ladies and men who serve in a nursery who take your kids so that you can be in here this morning. People who have been teaching your Sunday school class or your kids for literally 20 to 25 years. Some people have done ministry here for over 30 years. Same ministry, same place, never get on the stage, never get recognized. And Paul did something in that setting. He thanked people by name. He said, I want you to know how much you meant to me. I want you to know what you did for me. I want you to know the impact that you had in my life. If God would take the pages of sacred scripture to name people who contributed to the building of Jerusalem and the wall there in Nehemiah, and for him to take the names of people mentioned by Paul in Romans, maybe he's trying to tell us something. And to be honest with you, I don't think he's trying to tell us something. I think he is telling us something. Be people of gratitude. Be people who know how to give praise. It's a fascinating story in Luke chapter 17. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's the story of 10 lepers. Wandering in the uninhabited lands, probably somewhere around Samaria, having the worst kind of disease anyone can imagine in biblical days called leprosy. No one wanted to be around them. They couldn't touch anyone. They couldn't even go to a city without announcing the fact that I'm a leper and I'm coming and everybody would scatter. If they didn't announce who they were, they would have been stoned or could have been stoned. Somewhere near a forgotten village, ten lepers waited for Jesus. Desperate and afraid the crowds would pick up stones if they failed to warn them of the present, they stood at a distance and cried out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When Jesus saw their tattered clothes and heard their cries for mercy, he said the most startling thing. Instead of saying, you're healed, he said, go show yourself to the priest. Wouldn't have made sense to us at all. 
It wouldn't even have made sense to us knowing what Jesus had done on so many other occasions. But in that context, he just simply said those words. Go show yourself to the priest. The phrase was ordinary. They knew what it meant. According to Moses' regulation, a priest had to pronounce a leper clean or unclean. Now, the tent had already been pronounced unclean by a priest. That's why they were wandering out where they were, away from everybody else. The amazing part of the story is now they were being asked to check again. They begged for mercy and for healing, and then they began to wonder, did we get it? Is that what he means? Did it really happen? Have we really been healed? They didn't know. All they knew that Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests, and so they did. Scriptures tell us that all of them were Jews but one, one Samaritan. On their way, the sores and the dead patches of skin began to disappear. Jesus had really healed them. One moment they're covered by sores and perhaps deformed, and the next they're normal. And in that moment, they forget the most amazing thing that had just happened to them, and who was involved in doing that? They forgot about Jesus and went on their way. But one. One turned back. Across the fields, he came shouting in a loud voice and praising God. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then Luke adds a stunning statement, stunning at least to first century people. And he was the Samaritan. The only leper who bothered to come back and thank Jesus was a Samaritan. The first century Jew, they were religious half-breeds who had no real part of the kingdom of God and all that God had provided for the people of God. Only the Samaritan came back to thank Jesus. What about all the righteous sons of Israel, all the righteous sons of Abraham? Where were they? Now, we could easily say, well, they were obeying Jesus. They went and did what he said. Go show yourself to the priest. But then we'd miss the point of the story, made clear by Jesus in his final question, when he said, the other nine, were they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? What do you think Jesus was saying? I think, to be honest with you, he's saying that God's people seem to, every once in a while, take grace for granted. Or at least forget to say thanks. Of all the people on the planet, the ones who want to be able to display the most gratitude ought to be believers. We've been rescued, redeemed, forgiven, and set free. It should flow naturally from us. It should just simply come out of us everywhere we go. Nehemiah understood that. This man had gone from a cupbearer of the king, of a captor king, no less, to a governor over the people he loved in the land of promise. Jerusalem, the city that he loved, had gone from burnt rubble and destruction to a community of life and hope, the walls being rebuilt and the city beaming with life again. And in light of all of that, Nehemiah wants the people of God to give thanks and praise to the God who made it all possible. He knew that's where it came from. And so in Nehemiah chapter 12, turn with me and look at what he organizes and what he does. Nehemiah chapter 12, Old Testament, somewhere near the middle of the Old Testament after Ezra, is Nehemiah chapter 12. I'm going to begin at verse 24 and read the majority of the rest of the chapter. And I want you to look at the pieces of what he does as he begins to bring the people of God together and praise him for what he has done. Verse 24, and the leaders of the, of the Levites and their associates who stood opposite them gave praise and thanksgiving. One section responded to the other as prescribed by David, the man of God. The dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out. 
from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals and harps and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed to the top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hosiah and the other half of the leaders of Judah followed them, as did some priests with trumpets. With instruments prescribed by David, the man of God, Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. Verse 37, at the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall, passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate to the east. The second choir proceeded to the opposite direction or in the opposite direction. I followed them to the top of the wall together with all the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. I want to pause just a minute. Why do you think it says three times? You'll see it come up one more time. Why do you think it says two or three times that they went on top of the wall? I led them on top of the wall. I told them to go on top of the wall. Do you remember how this story began? When Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, getting criticism from all kinds of people, and Salabat looked at it and said, come on, you're going to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem? Even a fox would walk on top of that, and it would collapse underneath your feet. Don't you think it's now appropriate that Nehemiah takes everybody and climbs up on top of the wall? Let me show you what God has done. One of the most amazing parts of the resurrection story is how the angel in one of the sections of Scripture in the gospel sat on top of the what? On the stone. The angel could have been anywhere else. Could have sat anywhere else. Scripture also tells us in one story or one rendition that the angel was inside the tomb. But I love the one that says that the angel sat on top of the stone. The very thing that Pilate said would keep Jesus behind there, that would keep Jesus from resurrecting from the dead, that would be the impossible. There's no way he's going to get out of this. Put a stone in front of his place. Make sure that you seal it so no one can get out. And I love God when he comes down and sits an angel right on top of the stone that's been rolled away from the tomb. Every time you think that it's impossible, every time you think that you hear, it cannot be done, God cannot do it, it won't happen, it'll never turn out that way. Every time you hear that or think that, just remember those kinds of stories in this situation where Nehemiah, of all the places that he could have gone, maybe it was so everyone could see him, I get that. But I think he was making a very public statement. And maybe even to Salvador, wherever he was, just want you to know, yep, not only can this hold a fox, it can hold a choir. And just when you think God can't do it, I just want to show you that he can. Verse 40. Two choirs gave thanks and took their places in the house of God. So did I. Together with half the officials, on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms of the contributions, first fruits, and the tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were gathered to bring the storerooms, to the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah, had pleased with, for Judah was pleased with the ministering of the priests and the Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as also did the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. When it came to giving praise and adoration to God, Nehemiah pulled out all the stops. They brought in all the singers. They brought in all the choirs, all the instruments as prescribed by the song leader David. 
Psalm 150, praise God. Praise him in the sanctuary. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him in the heavens. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet, with the sound of the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and with dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe, with a clash of cymbals, with a resounding clash of cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. David had described that hundreds of years before this particular point. Hundreds of years later, we continue to do that. Every instrument possible. We still do that. Every instrument possible to give praise and adoration to the glory of God. And Nehemiah is saying, this is what David told us to do, and this is what we're going to do. And when we celebrate God in a way that we'll do in a moment, way we'll do at the end, this is what God tells us to do, this is what we're going to do. And we make no excuses for it at all. I love it. And what I love about in this particular point, in verse 42 and 43, look at what it says. It seemed to be so loud that they could hear it far away. Their praise and adoration was so loud that they could hear it around Jerusalem. Everyone heard them praise. Everyone heard them celebrate. <coughs> can, you, can you give me that water? I, <laughs> obviously, you know, uh, certainly congratulations to Monatal. They've done a great job undefeated this year. Obviously, you know, we've been following the Knox story. Went on Friday night to Valley... And if you've been following that story, and certainly if you didn't, you read it in the paper, but I'm telling you, you couldn't script a movie like this. And how that game ended, how it went, but I'm telling you, when it came to yelling and screaming, we did it to the top of our lungs, and it's a high school football team, for heaven's sakes. I love these kids. I love Mike. I love what they've done. I love what they accomplished, but it's a high school football team. And what I love about this fact is that they prayed so loud, they sang so loud, they gave adoration and praise to God that everyone around Jerusalem heard what they have done. And if anybody deserves praise and adoration, if anybody deserves singing to the top of our lungs with every instrument possible, it's God. Think how much we have to be thankful for. The gift of life, the gift of grace, the gift of the cross, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the promise of heaven. The list is endless. Romans tells us that creation alone ought to be the subject of our praise, let alone now living on this side of the Scripture when we see all that God has done. Think in your mind of the most breathtaking place you've ever been. Think in your mind of some of the most breathtaking places you've ever been. It could have been the hills of West Virginia or the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it's one of the most amazing sights on the planet. And every time, I got, every time I come there and every time I, I see the Rockies, I'm overwhelmed with what I see. When you get there, especially for the very first time, doesn't it make you just want to stand in awe? And when you get to a place like that and look at a scene like this, do you find yourself wondering about how large those signs are or how long the handrails are? No. You don't concentrate on the signs of the handrails or the road that got you there or even how it got you there. You concentrate on the majesty and the wonder and the beauty of what you see in front of you. When you see the grandeur for the very first time, you're overwhelmed with what you've seen. And it really doesn't matter how you got there. It doesn't matter whether you got there by car or by bus or by van. The issue is that you're there. And when you see it, you're overwhelmed 
first time I saw the Colorado Rockies, I couldn't take my eyes off of what I'd seen. I got, I'm not a morning guy. I get up early when, for four cups of coffee. You can't imagine how wired up I am in the morning. <laughs> but I'm telling you, first time I got to the Colorado Rockies and saw the breathtaking view in front of me, I didn't need any coffee. I got up early in the morning and I just stood there in awe. It didn't matter how I got there, how long it took to get there. I was just standing in the presence of Almighty God, looking at what, he ha- what his handiwork looked like. No wonder Scripture says, praise you for all you have done as I see the work of your hands. Really doesn't matter how I got there. Just mattered that I was there. It's the same with the glory of God. Once you see it and come into his presence and really concentrate on him, you'll find that the mode of getting you there isn't nearly as wonderful as where you are. It's not that you got there with a chorus or a hymn or soft music or energetic music. It's not about the method that gets you into the presence of God. It is what we do when we're in his presence. Being in the presence of God should bring a sense of awe. That's a sense of awe. A sense of peace, a sense of gratitude, a a feeling of joy, a sense of security. With all the uncertainty around me, I'm in the presence of God. (coughs) With an unknown today, with an unknown tomorrow, with the uncertainty of everything in our world, I am in the presence of God, and none of that seems to matter right now. In a book called Worship Matters, Bob Kaufman says, the foundation of our security in God is not our preparation or our plans or what others can provide for our protection. Our security doesn't rest in our military, our police, or even the stock market. Our security ultimately rests in the unchanging love of God. Incredibly displayed at Calvary. One of the reasons Christians often question God's protection and love is they somehow concentrate on the things around them instead of looking at the crucified Lord and the risen Savior at the center of our worship. The comfort and strength that corporate worship instills in us is more than a result of the music or the setting. It is a reminder that nothing in heaven or hell or in between can ever separate us from the love of God. Worshiping God ought to make us incredibly grateful. There's a reason that God commands us to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Psalm 100 answers that. For God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Worshiping God rightly opens our eyes to God's amazing grace. We remember how Christ rescued us and redeemed us and reconciled us and set us free. And in light of all of that, it gives us the opportunity to give praise and adoration. Greatest need was taken care of by the cross of Jesus Christ. For that reason, we're able to sing songs of gratitude and thanksgiving. One author says, there's something unique about Christianity. We talk about the uniqueness of Christianity being that we have a Savior that was dead, crucified, and buried, and rose again from the dead, but there is something even more unique than that, or at least as unique as that, and that is that songs of gratitude, songs of grace, songs of praise and adoration are distinct in Christianity, distant or distinct from every other faith. One author says the great faith of Buddhism or the Muslims have no place for the need of grace or praise or adoration. The clearest proof of that is simple. It lies in the songs of Christian praise. A Buddhist temple never resounds with cries of praise and the followers of Muhammad never sing prayers of thanks. Worshiping God brings us a sense of his presence and his well-being. And that regardless of what's going on around me, everything is Okay. Of all the things that God gives us as an opportunity to give him praise and adoration, he gives us music. 
He gives us words, sometimes written by someone else, sometimes written by his own authors, by his own hand. He gives us instruments, and David prescribes them all as a way of giving praise and adoration to the God of gods. What fascinates me about Nehemiah chapter 12 is that all of these instruments and all of these choirs and all of these people gathered together for praise and adoration to the rebuilding of a wall. You realize that? All of this action, all of this activity, all of these choirs, all of these instruments, all of these people were coming together to give praise and adoration to the God of all gods for the rebuilding of a wall. How much more should it so flow from us? After all, we realize two or 3,000 years later after this event, 2,000 years after the cross, how much should it just so flow out of us that it becomes natural? It's not about the method. It's not about the journey. It is about where I am with God and that I'm in his presence. And when I look back at what he has done and who he is, I am overwhelmed and amazed, and I just want to give you praise. And if they did all of this for a wall, what ought to come from us in light of everything he has done, in light of who he is? So this morning we're going to end with praise. And I'm telling you with that song. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. It's just such a privilege to be in your presence. And it's such a privilege to do it with the people of God. Even as I thought earlier this morning, we can sing on a way in, and I do. We can sing any day of the week, any time of the day, any place, any location. But there is something just wonderful about being together today. In this place with these people. And so, Father, as we begin this Thanksgiving week, may it be more than just an event. May it be more than just a holiday. May it be more than just a day. May it just flow out of us in such an unbelievably natural way that it becomes a part of who we are. That the people of God are people known for praise and adoration and gratitude and thanks. So may the words of our mouth, meditation of our heart, the songs that we sing, the instruments that we play, be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer who rescued us and set us free. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.